Welcome, everybody, to the first episode of The Worst of All Worlds. We had another tagline that we were thinking of, which is don't shoot the messenger or possibly please shoot the messenger. Uh, we don't want to live in this world anymore. But uh, so far, so good. We have a title. That's enough for us. We're going to start. We're going to jump in right into the deep end. We're going to talk about Ukraine. And first, I'm going to give a little overview. Uh, but before that, let me introduce uh, my co-hosts of this uh, brand new inaugural project, uh, our new podcast. Uh, first, I have Riley. Uh, Mr. Slavsquat himself from uh, the Slavsquat blog on Substack. And uh, Mr. Riley has done extensive work talking about Sputnik, uh, the effects of Sputnik, the effects of the lockdowns, really sort of raising the curtain on the disinformation that you see uh, in the alt-internet blogosphere regarding Russia and uh, the whole WEF agenda. He's also talked about other issues that are relevant to this whole globalist conspiracy, I guess you could call it, uh, especially economic policy, um, Russia's central bank, uh, the crypto ruble or the, the the internet ruble or the digital ruble. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. And um, it's a great blog. You guys should definitely check it out. Uh, Riley's a very smart contributor. And uh, then we have Mr. Marco, who runs antiwar.com, who's also recently moved over to Substack. And he is our resident war expert. And uh, like Mr. Strelkov, uh, Mr. Marco has pretty much been right about everything. He's got a almost impeccable track record of calling things out for as they are and not how we wish them to be. And so we take his analysis very seriously. You guys should check out his work as well. And finally, you have uh, the voice that you're going to be hearing probably at the beginning of every new podcast episode, myself, uh, Mr. Roloslavsky. And uh, I run a more eccentric blog, but basically I talk about similar things and I shill for Russia, but in my own special way. And I'm very excited to be talking uh, with my two co-hosts today because these are the voices that I think are giving the most accurate picture of what's going on in Russia, in Eastern Europe, and to some extent, uh, what's, gonna, what's going on in the world because you can really extrapolate from what we're talking about. And we're not gonna confine ourselves to talking just about Russia on this show. But uh, for today, we're gonna definitely dive into Ukraine give an overview of the situation. Some of the stuff you're going to hear is probably going to sound very, very different than what, you, what you're accustomed to hearing um, from other bloggers that are much more established, who have a certain reputation, who have a certain prestige around this topic. But um, one of the reasons why we got together to do this show is because we believe that these uh, more established voices, even though they claim to be alternative, are actually providing disinformation. And uh, it's impossible to draw a coherent narrative uh, uh, to, to gain a coherent worldview with it when you when you're dealing with uh, these levels of different disinformation coming from the, the sort of the pro-west side and even the pro-russia side what we're here about on this podcast is the truth we just want to talk about the truth we want to analyze it as best we can we try to stay away from conjecture uh, we want to talk about the facts and we want to draw whatever conclusions we can strictly from analyzing the facts so uh, a quick overview of, it's been a very eventful last couple of weeks uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and first of all, we had this, we can start basically with uh, the moment that the House of Cards fell, which was when the Ukrainians launched an offensive in the Kharkiv region. And it was a very successful offensive. And it was one that was uh, predicted by many people. Uh, in essence, uh, the Ukrainians massed their troops at a weak point uh, in the overstretched Russian defensive line. And they broke through and they overran the entire uh, oblast and uh, the entire region. 
forcing Russia into a hasty uh, withdrawal. Now, this has caused a lot of people to start scratching their heads, wondering how is it that, you know, we were being fed the narrative on one hand that like, you know, there was the pro-Western narrative and then there was the supposedly pro-Russian narrative where everything was fine. Russia was playing 5D chess. Russia was destroying 10,000 Ukrainian soldiers a day, an hour, every minute, 6 million Ukrainian soldiers were eliminated, according to some of these uh, bloggers and analysts. And yet all of a sudden, boom, breakthrough, all of a sudden big changes occur within Russia. All of a sudden people are talking uh, more like basically we were talking for, for, you know, for, for a while at this point. All of a sudden the mainstream consensus, na consensus narrative on Russia broke. All of a sudden people were uh, willing to give, let's just say, alternative, al alternative voices to the alternative uh, a chance. And um, as we all know, uh, partial mobilization has been announced uh, right before that. A referendum was announced uh, on whether or not uh, these uh, regions in Ukraine would join Russia. Uh, all of this is tied together, the offensive, the successful Ukrainian offensive, the uh, referendum, and the announcement of partial mobilization. So uh, let's start with the partial mobilization because that's where most of the buzz is right now. And I want to throw this question over to Marco. Uh, you're probably aware about 300,000 uh, people are about to be mobilized for this wave. Uh, do you think that that's enough? Uh, because your main narrative has always been that Russia is fighting outnumbered. And it's it's unclear why. It's a, it's a very strange strategy to pursue. And as we found out, it's not an effective one. And so finally, the dam broke. Mo partial mobilization was announced. And now we're hearing numbers of 300K. Marco, is that enough? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, well, you know, it doesn't really matter at this point if it's enough or not, because... Uh that's really all they can integrate, you know, right now because of how the Russian uh, military is constituted. So for the time being, it will have to be enough. And, you know, it will be enough for some things, maybe not for others. Uh, then it's just a matter of, of you know, where, what, exa what exactly will this uh, translate into? But, uh, you know, if, if they're now mobilizing, one thing this means is they never have to retreat for, from anything from anywhere again. Uh, you know, you're never gonna again see the the hardcore situation where you know where the line was manned, you know, so very thinly and without any reserves, and so on. And you know, I I think it should probably also be enough, you know, to 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 start making some gains again. But you know, uh, at what pace? That you know, that that is the question. And, you know, let's talk more about this, but I, I, I want to also say, I also want to, want to comment on something that you said in the introduction, which is that, you know, we're like the alternative to the more est established blogs and so on. And I don't think that's really the case. Uh, you know, for example, me, I'm, I, I think I'm very well established. I'm just not very popular right now, or I wasn't until now. Uh, you know, I've been... Uh, I've been, I've been, you know, following the Russian military, you know, writing about its exploits, its battles, and so on since 2015. You know, for for Russia Insider, and then you know, on my on my own website, like 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 just be, before COVID hit, you know, there was some of the most significant battles in, in Syria, there in Idlib. You know, I was covering that, and you know, I I, I didn't exactly have have like a huge following, but you know, I I. I I, I did have one. Uh, I still have it, and you know, maybe it's not as massive uh, an audience as, as some other people have, but you know, it, it's kind of an elite one. And also, you know, uh, 
when this war started in in Ukraine, you know, like uh, people who have a lot of clout now, uh, I, I, a lot of them I didn't see before. You know, a, a lot of them are newcomers. You know, because I know who was following the Russians in Syria, and and who is new, and a, a lot a lot of these people, you know, before they were not big or or they were they were not even on the scene. You know, with some ex with some exceptions, and and I think uh, those people who are already following Syria are are some of the most valuable ones. Uh, you definitely, let's just put it this way. Uh, well, I mean, I think a lot of people just try and ignore what you've been saying about the situation. And uh, that's kind of a shame because a lot of your opinions and a lot of the stuff that you've brought to light is actually uh, stuff that's very popular within Russia. Like it's a narrative that's not, you know, it, there, there's, there's people in the military establishment or around the military establishment retired people, people writing for these war journals, uh, political commentators, mostly on the internet, who've basically been saying what you've been saying. Um, but uh, for some reason in the West, that narrative hasn't really gotten out. And so there are these, I will call them, I don't know, like ambassadors or intermediaries that will, that like have positioned themselves as being the source of like what the, the moral authority or the intellectual authority on what Russians themselves are saying or what's going on in Russia and they're not painting a full picture because it seems like to put more accurately what you're saying what you're saying is, is sort of more common commonly found in like this uh, almost dissident patriotic community within Russia whereas what these other bloggers are reporting or the narrative that they're promoting is is like state media type uh, propaganda right like they they they're they're basically taking the line of the Ministry of Defense. In some cases, they're even embellishing it. Whereas what you're saying is more in line with like what people like um, Mr. Strzokov would be saying. Who what he's been saying for basically I don't know how long at this point. So would that be a more fair characterization of yourself and your work? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, something like that. In fact, actually, you know, if, if Strelkov uh, read my things, he would probably say that you know I have, I still have a little bit of rose-tinted glasses. You know, I have tended, to, you know, I have tended to be more optimistic than was in the end warranted. I mean, more optimistic for the uh, for the Russian side. And yeah, w w what you're saying about you know uh, uh, the you know the the rest of the alternative media, most of it, I mean. You know, yeah. What they're what they are saying is very is very similar to what uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense is releasing, but uh, at the same time, you know, I don't know that they that's you know that they're just copying that stuff. I think you know what is probably happening is you know they live in the West. They exposed a lot of you know this CNN stuff and to a lot of people who just watch CNN, and you know they naturally have the, the, the this reaction against that, and, and you know the easiest. You know the easiest thing uh, in that case, you know, is just to you know is just to fall back on, on 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 the propaganda of the other side, instead of uh, you know uh, the official propaganda. Instead of you know digging a little bit uh, deeper, you know, thinking a little bit for yourself, uh, stuff like that. Well, while we're on the topic, I know Mr. Slavsko uh, monitors these uh, dispatches from the patriotic community within Russia quite closely, and. Uh, you know he doesn't he hasn't written uh his like overview of the situation now but uh what would you characterize i mean obviously you're 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 also digging into these uh more within russia these alternative sources uh these people who are patriotic who are trying to 
you know, their, their, their goals are like, they, they want Russia to win. They want Russia to be successful. Um, they may have other goals, like bigger strategic objectives they would like to see Russia pursue. Uh, but in general, um, they're not like this. They're not like liberals. They're not like anti-Russian uh, malcontents. And I know you monitor that scene pretty closely. So what would you say like the overall attitude is now? And, and how, how was it like before? I mean, what do you think? I mean, are, are we... Are you, I think that you're you're willing to, uh, you you've sort of been able to do the same with uh, COVID. You've been able to like find these alternative patriotic voices who are saying, "What's going on with this with this COVID nonsense?" And uh, now uh, you're kind of doing the same with uh, alternative patriotic voices who are talking about the war situation and some of the stuff that you've dug up. Some of these contradictions uh, about how the war is being conducted um, have really like opened my eyes to a lot of the inconsistencies in the official narrative that the Russian side is uh, promoting. So, I mean, it's kind of a broad-ended question, Riley, but do, do you want to jump in on that and share your thoughts? Yeah, well, from my reading of the situation, and I have to say, I mean, while I follow, you know, Strelkov and sort of similar Strelkov-type people on Telegram, uh, but, you know, I... I pay particular attention to Military Review, which is Russia's largest military news portal. And they seem to be um, quite supportive of this partial mobilization effort. Probably they are thinking, you know, why wasn't this done five months ago or six months ago? Because they have been calling for it for a very long time. Uh, the problem, of course, is that, and they they've been we're writing about this right up to Putin's announcement, is that we're still dealing with some very fundamental and frankly concerning problems with Russia's war effort. I mean, the first of all, I mean, the most basic stuff is like uh, how to equip these three hundred thousand reservists when um, you know uh, Donbass militia members are still being given. World War II era rifles, and they have to dig up their own body armor. And this, a lot of these, uh, you know, there's there are patriotic groups in Russia that I know that you, Rolo, um, you know, know about, and uh, who have been basically working around the clock trying to get, uh, you know, humanitarian aid and military equipment and other necessary gear like drones into the Donbass and. Basically, you have to like sneak around the FSB. You have to, you have to somehow like it's almost like you're, uh, you know, you're smuggling this stuff across the border from Rostov, which is again such a, I mean, such a big question mark here. Why is it so difficult to send this gear, and why is it being provided by private citizens and not the government? And why did Russia launch this war without? having the necessary stockpiles of the most basic equipment for these fighters who were forcibly conscri forcibly conscripted in Donetsk and Lugansk. That's one issue that's still sort of hanging over I me. Mean, that's, that's a big question mark for me, and I think it's still um, something that's concerning for, for many uh, of what we might call like the pro-war hardliners in Russia. Another one is why is Russia still transiting gas gas across Ukraine. Uh, TASS reported on yesterday that um, ga gas shipments across Ukraine 
they haven't even been changed. There's, it's, st it's still going on. I found this fascinating article, by the way, and this is maybe a whole other topic. I don't want to get too into it, but the recent very controversial um, prisoner exchange that happened involving these um, Azov fighters. And, you know, you got 55, I believe, Russian POWs in exchange, which, you know, I, I, I can see why you would want and any any Russian life that you can save or bring back home. I think that's a that's an honorable thing to do. But then you have, you know, you're exchanging something like 200 alleged neo-Nazis for, you know, Vidvidchuk, like a, an oligarch who probably backstabbed Russia or is basically incompetent. But I found this incredible article from Reuters saying that uh, this is from September 16th. Zelensky suggests resuming Russia ammonia exports in exchange for POWs. And and we were so I think all of us were were scratching our heads. Why did this prisoner exchange happen on the same day, basically, that uh, partial mobilization was announced? Is it because is it because Russia is desperate to pump you know ammonia across Ukraine, and then this was the deal that they could do? I mean, the, how how can you declare like war against the collective West and call Kiev you know a, a neo-Nazi regime, and you know? talk this talk while you are providing money you're you're putting rubles into kiev's coffers to uh continue the war effort and this is by the way what this criticism of mine is loud and clear in these patriotic circles a military review published an op-ed on september 20th so a day before partial mobilization was announced asking this exact question like what are we doing how can how can this be justified? And by the and just be very clear, this criticism goes for both sides here. How can Zelensky justify conscripting ordinary Ukrainians to lay down their lives for Ukraine while they're accepting money from their you know, let's call them the, the, the invaders, you know, from the Russian uh, from the Ukrainian perspective, uh, you know, to transport their gas across their territory? And how can Russia expect? these 300,000 reservists to risk their lives in Ukraine if it's business as usual. And I don't think that this is a petty question to ask. In fact, I think it's sort of central to um, a lot of the, the larger, like the big picture questions that linger over this conflict, the contradictions, the, you know, the sort of, there's this sort of sense that while while the the proles are expected to buy these narratives you know like we're fighting the nazis or we're fighting the invaders it's at a, at a different at a higher level it's just everything is as it always was and is this acceptable and what does this mean and and when we talk about you know who is going to win this conflict well what happens after one side wins or maybe there's no winners and that's sort of where to be perfectly frank, I'm sort of drifting towards, but to me, it seems like if nothing is changing during the war, why should we expect anything to change after the war? And that's one of the big questions I've oh, I've been constantly asking anyone who will listen to me is what is the end game? How does this end? And, uh, you know, is the long game in Ukraine uh, good for the proles? Well, uh, that's... A very broad question. I don't know if I can uh, answer. I mean, I have my ideas about uh, what I think would be good for the proles. 
uh, and I, I write about that on the blog. Um, I, but in my point of view, and I'm not going to dwell too long on this because uh, we want to stay on topic here. But it, I mean, Riley just brought up a lot of very interesting points. Uh, in my the way I view the situation, uh, basically anything that undermines the power of like this sort of liberal oligarch caste in Russia might benefit uh, the proles. Um, but you also have, as uh, Riley touched upon, the problem of the spook state, which is, frankly, a problem that you find in pretty much every modern government. You have this sprawling intelligence apparatus, and um, it's unclear what these people do, because when push comes to, to shove, uh, you know, for some reason, weapons flows are being stopped, volunteer money and stuff like that. And volunteers themselves are, can't seem to get to Donbass. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know how endemic the problem is now, but it was very critical, especially in the first years of the rebellion. Uh, and it was, it was common knowledge. It was constantly talked about in patriotic circles. And uh, I don't know what the answer for that is, other than that the FSB has an agenda of its own, just like in America, the FBI has an agenda of its own. And just like all over the world, it seems like it's these agencies have a mind of their own. And, and sometimes it overlaps with the interests of, of the state. Other times it seems to be in direct contradiction. And most of the time it's this murky gray area where it seems like they're just trying to make a quick buck on uh, whatever event has happened. Um, but when push comes to shove, like the near assassination of uh, Alexander Dugan, uh, these people in their services were nowhere to be found. Uh, this terrorist waltzes into Russia, something that I couldn't do. I got detained right at the border and kicked out and had my shit stolen. And, uh, but you know, this woman can, she can rent an apartment right next to her target. She can trail him. She can change her license plate three times. She can plant a bomb provided to her by some operative who's been living in Russia. Um, and then she can waltz back over the border and, uh, nothing has been heard of, uh, from her since. So yeah, there's like a lot of questions here, um, that definitely need to be answered. Uh, but in general, let's uh, circle back to the topic of Ukraine and, and what we can expect next. Uh, with this partial mobilization, uh, I was struck by uh, something that Peskov said uh, recently, where he said that uh, you're still not allowed to call it a war. He was asked point blank, like, can we now start referring to this thing as a war, which we, we've already done on this podcast. And um, a lot of people already know this, but in Russia, you're not allowed to refer to the war as a war. Uh, you're, you're, you must refer to it as a, as the special military operation or the policing operation. And I, I, I think I can kind of figure out the reasoning why the state would promote this line. Um, but I was struck by the fact that even after partial mobilization, uh, Peskov, the press secretary said, we still can't call this a war. Um, Marco, do you, do you have any thoughts on this? What, what is it? I mean, this is kind of consistent, this theme of, the Kremlin not being able to call things as they are, not being able to just sort of speak plain language and, and, and just lay their cards out on the table to the Russian people and level with them. And they're always using rhetorical tricks, legalese, uh, anything but to just call a spade a spade. And uh, I have some theories on why that is. But, um, I mean, you've definitely noticed this and you've written about this before. Do you want to chime in on this? Well, what do you make of it? Like, well, why would Peskov, even after partial mobilization, insist that, uh, you know, we shouldn't refer to such a, an event as, as, as a war. Yeah, I've, I've definitely noticed this or Orwellianism. And it, it, it's also, you know, apparent in this other change that uh, Riley was talking about. You know, it, it's very evident that 
uh, how, uh, how how the the top of Russia thinks of us or privately, and what they say in 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 public is 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 very separate. And yeah, as you say, I've noticed this, but no, I I want to hear your explanations for it because I have none. This is you know this is just mind-boggling. I mean, you know, to what extremes they will go. You know, okay, of course you will massage your language a little bit. You know, let's remember the Bush years. But this is just this is just insane. This is just uh, mind-boggling. So please, you tell me, you know, your hypothesis. Well, I, I think that um, calling it a war would be an admission of uh, policy failure on the part of the Kremlin. It would be an admission of the fact that they lost Ukraine, which, uh, you know, we kind of watching from the side a little bit more grounded in reality, we kind of already know that. We've kind of already accepted that, obviously, right? But these, I mean, try and understand that I think these people understand that it's it's a huge egg on their face to admit that they are at war with Ukraine, which is why I think they use such special language in the beginning. It's a few bad eggs. It's it's a denazification operation. There's some like terrorist criminals that have taken hijacked the country. Uh, to say that you are now at war with Ukraine is basically to admit that you have lost Ukraine. And then the question is, how could you lose Ukraine? People who speak the same language, the, the vast majority spoke Russian in, in Ukraine. I don't know these people who like claim that people all spoke Ukrainian in Ukraine. Have they ever been to Ukraine? It's 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 a ridiculous claim. Uh, obviously, there that the Ukrainian exists. I'm not denying that, but I mean Zelensky when he was inaugurated as a peace candidate. By the way, people voted for him because he promised to end the uh, the just end the madness. Uh, you know, he gave his inauguration speech in in Russian. Uh, but and he hasn't really spoken in Russian since then. Uh, but the, the the main point is that it's it's just incredible to think that uh, there there was no plan for keeping Ukraine uh, in Russia's orbit. That they could have, if there was a plan, that it was so colossally botched. And I think so many people, uh, like the aforementioned Medvedchuk, who just got swapped recently, who we're going to talk about next, uh, all these people were tied up in this net. Of this, this like I guess you could call this 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 overarching operation to keep Ukraine at least neutral or at least somewhat in the sphere of Russia's influence, and all of them failed miserably. They couldn't do anything, uh, if if they even tried. And so now to basically say, well, yeah, now we're at war with Ukraine. I think even for many Russians who are not following these things that closely, uh, that would be like a huge like what? I guess it would be like an American waking up one morning and hearing that we're at war with Ohio. Or we're at war with Texas or something like that, instead of, uh, well, you know, some terrorists have hijacked Texas, and you know, we're gonna we're gonna fix this, we're gonna take care of this. Yeah, there is something yeah. to that, you know, because if you read uh, uh, dispatches from the Russian Ministry of Defense, uh, they're actually saying that uh, they're fighting nationalists, and and the nationalists are are making Ukrainian servicemen fight, you know, by by threatening them and by shooting them and stuff like that. So, you know, pure fiction. Uh, but you know, uh, isn't there a middle middle ground? Maybe you know they don't need to declare war on Ukraine. They can just say we are in a state of war because we are, uh, because you know we are we are fighting these nationalists in Ukraine. You know, not the Ukraine, but you know these these bad elements. You know, you know, we, we, which is you know we would also be fiction. But you know, couldn't they do that? Uh, no, they they just want to stick you know to the to the. To, to the this insane concept special military operation i mean never nobody has ever heard of it 
I mean, they're annexing lands to Russia. They're going around, you know, as soon as they take a region, they annex it to Russia, and this is a special military operation. What the hell? Like, this is the most war war has ever been. I mean, this is like 19th century stuff, and I don't know, you know, like, there, there's actually, you know, a little bit of charm to, to, to such a war, finally, you know. It's not like, oh, we're going to Iraq, we're going to bring them human rights, you know, to these, you know, mud brown people because you know we're the we're the white saviors and they don't know how to run things themselves no n none of that crap it's just like russia is too small we used to have more real estate and we're taking our real estate back because you know we wanted fair and square from the tatars we settled it fair and square you know with people from our empire and somehow we ended up without it and we want it back i mean there's i don't know it's 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 almost refreshing i mean you know i'm, I'm not into wars between you know little russians and and great russians but you know other than that it's it's almost refreshing what's going on here and they call this special military operation this is this this is you know call it a war of conquest or call a war of recon reconquest you know whatever you prefer but that that's what it is well i don't think they say that i mean a lot of people say that within russia a lot of people would like them to say that openly uh, including the patriotic community, um, but I I don't think that they use that kind of language. Uh, they if they did, they'd actually have a lot of people signing up to volunteer, and they would they wouldn't have such trouble uh, explaining themselves. Uh, people can understand 19th century terms very well because they're very grounded, I suppose, in in human nature and like like observed reality a lot more than the terms of the 21st century which are very nebulous, uh, like you said about Iraq, like bringing democracy to uh, Muslim savages and bombing them and like sieging their cities and getting rid of a secular dictator to I, whatever. We're not talking about Iraq right now. But uh, the, the the point is that I don't think that they couch it in those terms. I think it would, it would indeed be refreshing if the government said, look, we have historical claim. These are our people by right of blood and history and 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 might of arms we're going to take it back that would be pretty awesome uh but uh can i uh, can i sorry can i just jump in here for just for a second um you know i think that a lot of the spin that comes from the kremlin uh is because they perceive that the course that they are you know pursuing will will be deeply unpopular if if they just call it what it is and I'll give you examples from the the COVID days, which aren't over. But like the the classic example is the uh, epidemiological holiday, which is what they called um, the soft lockdown in autumn 2021, when they closed all businesses, but you're still allowed to go outside. They called it an epidemiological holiday. And then um, you know the classic example is is with compulsory vaccination in Russia. There's a there's a joke within Russian society where it's a uh, um, like mandatory, mandatory, voluntary vaccination. And, you know, you had like Peskov coming out saying uh, well, repeatedly, um, you know, there's no there's no mandatory vaccination in Russia because uh, if you don't want to get vaccinated, you could just you just quit your job. <laughs> you know, you just find a new, you could just find a new job that doesn't require mandatory vaccination. And so it's um, to, it's strange because one has to conclude logically here that they think that if they call this like you said rollo that if they call this a war against ukraine that 
people will, you know, that that leaves a bad taste at the very, you know, to put it mildly, that leaves a bad taste in a lot of Russians' mouths because Ukraine is a is a supposed to be the brotherly state. And why would we be at war with Ukraine? And so it might it might seem like a small detail, but calling it a special military operation and refusing to call it a war sort of leaves this sort of wiggle room for the Kremlin to be like, no, no, you don't understand. We're not waging war against Ukraine. We're doing this special military operation to extract the Nazis and liberate Donbass. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, but but you know the question is: Is that really true? You know, would would the people actually better react a little bit better? You know, with a little bit more honesty, at least in this case, and because, yeah, I I I, I think you nailed it. You know, I I I think that is a great insight, but I think that just speaks to their disconnect because, you know, that is true. Like in their circles, in the circles they move, you know, to the champagne parties they go, and that is true of their own children. You know, like their own children have a very big problem uh, with this war uh, for, for different reasons than I do. Uh, but but uh, they don't understand that, you know, people in the provinces aren't necessarily like their children and, and like their friends. The provinces, I mean, like, get out of the central ring of Moscow, go to the Kami blocks or the Novostroys, and, uh, you know, people are you know, most people in most countries of the world understand 19th century concepts and terms better than they understand 21st century concepts and terms. I mean, I, I totally agree. Uh, they, 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 there is this extreme disconnect between the ruling class, um, which has to basically, this is my thesis, basically, that, you know, for better or for worse, uh, they, they're in this position now where they have they have to survive, you know, like they've, they can't cut any deals with the West. I mean, they could, but the deal would be so catastrophic that they, they wouldn't, I mean, it's like, it's just, it's, it's, it's inconceivable the, the, what they would have to give up. Like they would have to let Russia be carved up into, you know, balkanized probably at this point into, into, into like six separate countries. And uh, they'd have to personally suffer quite a bit. They'd probably lose their posts and that's like a cost they're not willing to incur. Um, but otherwise, uh, they they're they're pretty much down with everything that the West is saying. The West is this is like an entirely one-sided thing, where the Russian elite has demonstrated time and again that they're willing to go along with this Western globalist agenda as long as they get their seat at the table. And if the West wasn't like so uncompromising and so just I don't know I guess motivated by like this atavistic hatred of Russia and everything to do with Russia. They, they could have like come to a compromise like Russia could be a part of the EU and, you know, subject to the dictates of Brussels uh, if, if, if things had held their course, even under Putin, because Putin expressed um, a desire to, 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 to go on that course, to be integrated into this new globalist uh, paradigm that was emerging. But they just couldn't somehow like contain their visceral hatred of everything Russian in the West. And so they kind of forced these people to put their backs against the wall. And these people are liberals. Uh, they are a foreign, mostly elite, in the sense like their ideology, their mindset. They, a lot of them studied in the West. They're, they send their kids to study in the West, right? And they have no idea what like the actual Russian is. And I'm, I'm going to exclude uh, President Putin um, from this uh, criticism. I know you guys criticize Putin more. I don't include him in that criticism. But everyone around him, almost everyone around him, definitely fits that uh, description. So yeah, they, they, they try to explain this thing in language that only like 
could be geared at some office plankton living in the center of Moscow or some like NGO worker also living in the center of Moscow or someone working at the Tolerance Museum in the center of Moscow. But uh, the, the people understand uh, simple terms, simple concepts. They, they, they'd be, if, if, if the Kremlin actually just started speaking the language of the people, uh, they would act, the war would be a lot more popular. Uh, people would understand what it was about. And there wouldn't be this intense distrust of uh, official decorations coming from the Kremlin. They're like, it's 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 almost like the people want the war more than the actual people in the government want it. And uh, and and I think the reason why they don't want it is purely for selfish and ideal and because they're just ideologically Western. Uh, that is a that is a recurring problem within Russia ever since Peter the Great, who was a Satanist and who uh, was uh, was was a scourge. Uh, in Russia's history, and uh, he should not be called the Great, but that is a topic for another time. Ever since then, you've you've had this perennial problem of these uh, elites constantly looking towards the West, constantly like feeling that they owe the West an explanation, feeling ashamed of the sentiments of the people that they rule over. Uh, and you had, I think, it was far less pronounced in the 19th century, but you, you definitely have this return because of the the 90s, and and that's what the topic I wanted to bring up next. Are we basically just are all the problems that we're talking about, are, is all of it just a result of the kleptocracy of the 90s under Boris Yeltsin, where these gangsters and, you know, anti-communists, uh, just in the bad sense, just like people, pro-Western people, uh, you know, oligarchs, just total fucking fraudsters, they somehow got these positions of power. Some of them have been dislodged, not all of them, probably not even the majority of them. And we're just sort of left with the remnants of this kleptocracy. And now when push comes to shove and it's do or die, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's this critical moment in Russia's history. And we're just saddled with these idiots. Uh, is that what the situation is about? Is, is What do you think of that analysis? I, I find that like I always end up reverting to it. I'm like, well, you know, he, you know, they're trying to do the best that they can with these idiots that they've got left over from the 90s. So what do you guys think? Any guy, any of any I don't, I don't think that's true because, uh, yeah, there has been some turn, turnover. Uh, uh, to some extent, uh, that, that the old people were dislodged, but more to the extent that uh, new people were added, including uh, new billionaires, new new tycoons. So no, no, I, I, I don't think we can blame the 90s oligarch class anymore. Uh, maybe you know more like the 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 19th culture. You know, like people change, but 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 this culture re remains. So it's just this and, and liberal now, culture, right? No, no, the culture of, of stealing of, of graft. Yeah, and for me, that's that's and like you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, but you know, I, I'm sure that you had that uh, centuries ago. Also, in fact, you know, the whole aristocracy, feudalism business, you know, what was that other than you know legalized graft and so on? But uh, uh, yeah, th that is all I have on this. Uh, let's uh, let's hand it over to Riley. I mean, I, to that, I would just say, look, um, maybe maybe it's unfair to uh, to be overly critical but at the same time i mean we're talking about putin has been in power for how long now what, what, well, what, what are we years. at now about 20 years right 
and his, his entire inner circle is full of scumbags. And it's like, uh, you know, I think that Marco made this joke, which is like, uh, we always talk, we always hear about the fifth columnist, but if everyone surrounding Putin is a perceived fifth columnist, and they certainly act that way very often, doesn't that make Putin the fifth columnist? You know, like, doesn't that, doesn't that mean that Putin is surrounded by dudes who are just like completely ideologically different from him or have different motivations? I mean, assuming, if we can assume that, that Putin really is uh, a patriotic, uh, you know, he, he's a, a pro-Russia and patriotic, um, that makes Putin the odd man out. That makes Putin the, the you know, the guy who needs to be rooted out. If, if you're looking at it from the perspective of this apparently very well entrenched, uh, yeah, like culture of, of grift in the Russian government and incompetence and, and very Western looking and very, and increasingly technocratic. And it makes one wonder like, what what is preventing Putin from just sitting down at his desk, taking out his little notepad, and you know, jotting down a few decrees to uh, you know at least put the brakes on some of the stuff that has been happening, especially since the start of the so-called pandemic? Uh, how is it that how is it that Russia can invade Ukraine, but it you know it can't? stop compulsory clock shops that that's i mean i know i'm i'm a i'm a biosecurity guy and so that's just me sort of you know grumbling but that's a question that i that's always on my mind that i just don't understand well you know sometimes people some people say oh you know i'm the kind of person i want a strong leader you know i don't want these weaklings but what happens in practice you know when you have a so-called strong leader you cannot have 60, you know, people who are nonconformist and, you know, strong personalities and whatever. What happens is that you have one guy like that, if you're lucky, and then you have 59 people, you know, who are toadies and who are there because they're really great at sucking up. And I think that's what, you know, that is what you have. So, I mean, uh, this is the consequence of, of like, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Rolo, maybe you won't like this uh, answer, but, you know, it, it uh, it, it isn't that the case? You have a strong leader. That in in practice means that your that your leadership is made up of toadies and suckups. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, you do have a lot of toadies and suckups uh, who Putin himself likes to make fun of. I'm always reminded of that interview. <laughs> I don't know who he did that interview with. I think it was it was with Simonyan, where he started just bashing Peskov, and he was like, "I don't know what this guy is saying." Sometimes he says stuff and I'm like, where did he get this idea? Uh, but then again, as Riley pointed out, the question is, well, why don't you fire him? Uh, I do. Uh, I've, I, I like to read about like political theory and like perennial concepts in general. And I think the, the oldest concept of all is the idea that no man rules alone. And for Americans, I would bring up the example of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is actually a much worse example than Putin because he was going into it he was connected with a lot of um criminal i don't know how you how can i say this politically correctly uh just a a tribal sort of mafia he was connected with them like sheldon adelson and the kushner clan and all that but even so i mean the man was definitely the archetypical uh populist strong man he rides into office on a wave of popular support uh you know very like totally archetypical like we could, you could basically trace it back to caesar this this sort of 
model. Uh, he gets into office, though, and he can't do anything. And, you know, more and more we get these memoirs and these accounts of you know, Trump comes up with some idea and everybody works around the clock to stop him from implementing the idea. And the question then is, well, why didn't Trump do something about that? Why didn't he fire Jared Kushner? Why didn't he fire some of these people who were working around the clock uh, behind his back? And uh, I don't know the answer to that question, but you, you do get this like impression that uh, and now he, he's being uh, charged by like uh, a lot of the same people that he uh, was working with, like, uh, for example, the, the Justice Department. I mean, uh, the Justice Department did nothing under his reign to curb the, 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 the brutal violence that was uh, inflicted on America by groups like Antifa. And then all of a sudden he's out of office, uh, basically a coup by his own government and uh, members of the opposition, the Democratic deep state opposition. And now he's being harassed by, uh, you know, the same people that he had the chance to purge or to to put his own people in these positions. Right. It, it's it's an interesting question. I, I think that uh, it's possible that um, the problem isn't uh, the strong leader. The problem is that the leader isn't strong enough. The problem is that he doesn't have full dictatorial powers. Uh, I will say this. Uh, Putin has no out. I don't know. You can critique him for his clot shot policy. You can critique him for letting Nabulina stay at the uh, central bank, is it? Uh, you can critique him for not arresting all the oligarchs. There's so many things you could do to critique Putin. Uh, but I do think fundamentally, if he loses this thing, if there's a Maidan or a coup that's uh, led against him, if he loses this war, if he loses in the elections, he's he's dead. I, I mean, he has no recourse. He can never... There's no country he can flee to. And that, the same goes for a lot of people uh, within Russia and within the within the government. Not everybody. I think a lot of them think they can still cut a deal with the West, which explains a lot of their behavior. But I think uh, there are I think that's the hope. You have to find people whose backs are against the wall, people who even if they were liberal, even if they were, you know, they, they grew up in this uh, 90s culture, even if they have these stupid ideological spooks in their head. Uh, their backs are against the wall and they need to take common sense, real politic measures to survive. That's where you want your leaders uh, in general. You want them with their backs against the wall facing a potential firing squad and, and not knowing that there's nowhere they can flee to. Like, you know, Yanukovych knew he could flee to Russia. Uh, where can where can Putin go? Can you go to North Korea? I mean, maybe that's like that's it. Maybe he can uh, go into the hollow earth uh, or something. He, like, he can go to Syria. <laughs> He can go to Syria, yes. but that's not much safer. Right. So, I mean, that would be my thing. I think that uh, for all the criticisms of the guy, he's invested. I mean, he's in. He's he's ride or die at this point. And so, all the good news we're going to get is going to be coming from him. Uh, and whereas anyone who's not fully invested, people who think they still have an out, some wiggle room, eh, we're going to hear a lot of uh, you know strange stuff uh, from their end. But anyway, um, let's uh, let's just circle back to the main topic, uh, which is Ukraine and and the the recent events in Ukraine. Let's talk about that prisoner swap. Uh, the timing was strange. Uh, what is the importance of Medvedchuk to the Kremlin? Is, is he at all important to the war effort? Is he at all important to you know the future of Ukraine? Why was he so important that uh, you know I think it was like a hundred. Uh, as of Stahl, like the worst of the worst, the, the evil. Yeah, 200, 200. These evil people that this is like the, the 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 reason that Russia gave for being there, that they were there to purge these people. What makes this guy so important that he gets 
you know, this, this sort of special treatment. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I don't think anything makes him important. I think, you know, he has lost his utility, his importance uh, to the extent he ever had. Uh, the motto of the of the invasion is we don't leave ours behind. Uh, I guess you know it was a signal from 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 Putin, you know, to to people who who wanna you know work with him, you know, be behind enemy lines. That you know you won't you will not be abandoned. You know, in the end we will get you out if we can. Uh, and you know, ev even even if it's like a person we we don't approve of much, like Medvedchuk, you know, that that, that is still you know that's still an okay sentiment to have and an okay signal to put out there you know the problem is just if you if you give the enemy 200 of his soldiers back i mean uh, that means that that some of your guys who who would have come home now will not you know because of those 200 they will go back to war eventually uh some of them will perish but you know before they perish some of them will also inflict some casualties Yeah, you know, I, I would add to that, though, that, um, first of all, you know, tra trading a, a prisoner swap to bring 55 Russian soldiers home. I mean, I think that you can obviously make a very strong case for that. I think that's a very humane, rational, sensible thing to do. Uh, as for Medvedchuk, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know how you can really justify it. But even if you can justify it, there needs to be there needs to be at least a realization here, which is that this concept that Russia went into Ukraine to so-called denazify it has just been fed through the wood chipper officially. And there's no going back from this. I'm sorry. You can't, you know, go back to May when, um, you know, Pushilin, the head of the DPR, was talking about, you know, rebuilding, building an entire court to hold tri international tribunals. They were going to invite observers from around the world to try these guys. And by the way, one of the prisoners that was exchanged was the head of, of Azov, you know, which has been vilified in Russia for the last eight years. In fact, I'm pretty sure that the Duma are either considering uh, designating them as a terrorist organization or already have. I, I don't remember what that where the status is on that yet, but it what it does is that it's extremely demoralizing and offensive to those who uh, really, first of all, not only like bought into this narrative, but possibly laid down their lives for this idea that Russia was cleansing East Ukraine of these punitive battalions that. Frankly, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of propaganda on both sides, but there's no getting around the fact that some elements in these, you know, uh, you know, Azov and other parts of the sort of Ukrainian military apparatus have acted in horrific ways and have committed horrific crimes. This is a this is a documented reality, and what you've done now is that you you're seven months into this war and you find you actually achieve you actually did manage to catch the you caught the main guys of the main bad guy force and you exchange them for a fucking oligarch and and at the same time you 
you forcibly mobilize 300,000 Russians. So you're asking Russians to lay down their lives when you just backtracked on uh, one of the main talking points of this conflict. And so what, what kind of message does that send? Well, I can tell uh, well, you. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, you know, the thing is, uh, as all, as it's now clear, and it was clear before me already, it was uh, Russia had a problem with them uh, in the sense of, you know, like, it irritates us that you're putting up Nazi signs, you know, across our cities, our cities, you know, and yours, you know, our joint cities, you know, cities like Kharkov, you know, that are very important to us and that we bled to to freed from the Nazis. But they weren't really ever considered uh, as the Nazi Nazis, which, uh, which honestly they aren't. I mean, you know, are they doing eugenics programs? Are they, you know, are they, are they genociding some ethnic minority right now? And yeah, they committed uh, so, some crimes, some abuse of civilians, but so did people who, who, who don't run around with runes. You know, you don't, have a, you don't have to be a Nazi to abuse civilians. So, so I, I think there, there was always nuance, which I was trying to, to get across, even when I was writing, you know, why the war would happen and why, you know, the presence of, of, of people who are, you know, posing around as Nazis would, would, would be one of the reasons uh, for it. But, you know, it, it seems that uh, a lot of people latched on it uh, uh, like very, very, uh, what's, what's the word? You know what I mean. Uh, very literally, you know. I mean, they okay. bought into this narrative, but but it, this was a very, I mean, look, there's, I, I agree with you, Marco, but there's no way to get around this fact that Azov are the, the evil, you know, neo-Nazi type guys and, and you know, the, the siege of Mariupol or Azovstal. This yeah. was central to the whole narrative. Central. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I don't think they're they're proclaimed a terrorist organization, but they are, you know, one of those organizations banned in in Russia, like ISIS and and Medusa. So, uh, yeah, whenever whenever you say Azo in Russian press, you have to add banned in Russia. Yeah, I got accused of being Azov, uh, which was I think one of the reasons why I wasn't <laughs> allowed into Russia. Uh, I'm not in Azov. I've never been in Azov. I don't support Azov, just just for the record. But uh, what the, I, mostly they're what they are is they're just psychopathic criminals. I mean, these guys are they're a lot of them are literally former ex-cons or or cons. I mean, how do you think these groups are formed? This is an open secret, at least within you know intelligent yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, and, and and a lot of like football hooligan types, and and honestly. And and I, I saw like uh, it was after the Donbas war. After the Donbas war, they they had a manifestation in support of, of Bosnian Serb Ratko Mladic. You know, so I mean, the and, and I even read, you know, the some guy had a hypothesis that before 2014 they were they weren't even all that anti-Russian. That that he sees, you know, in this uh, Ukrainian neo-Nazism, that it could have gone two ways. You know, that it could have gone, you know, the sort of anti-Russian, anti pro-Ukrainian way, but that he also sees the option that he could, that he could have gone, you know, in a pro-Russian direction and then, and then, uh, you know, what happened, happened. So, so well, what happened was that these guys, the, the whole prisoner hooligan thing, this is, so, this is just common knowledge. I mean, this is like stuff that like you, you, you would like learn from your grandma if you like visited you know ukraine in the summers and stuff it's that because she you know she'd be trying to keep you away from this sort of thing 
It's that, you know, there are these guys, these young men who, you know, gravitate towards some sort of like a, like a gang. That's what young men do. They like, you know, it could be a clique. It could be a subculture. You know, it could be a fan club or it could be a gang. I mean, that's what, that's what young people do. And they were gravitating towards these uh, groups. And what happened was a lot of them were hired by oligarchs as like private muscle. This is, this is a, a problem endemic across all of Eastern Europe. Okay. Some like local oligarch who's trying to muscle over his competition, who, who needs some protection, who wants to, I don't know, like legit, like literally send these guys in to seize a TV or a radio station and just say that it's theirs, will hire them to, to do that, to be their private mercenary force. And that's what these guys were. They were private mercenary force. Um, and, you know, the whole Nazism thing, uh, there is this like Nazi thing in, in the west of Ukraine. But a lot of these guys are from the east. And, you know, a lot of neo-Nazi culture is just prison culture. I mean, it's it's the same in the west. I mean, you, you go into prison, you join the Aryan nation. It's not, uh, let's just put it this way, it's not like a political national socialist Third Reich political platform, right? It's, it's, it's just gang culture. That's what it is. It's like, so that's sort of like you're going, it, it's like what America says when they're talking about like the, the wars that they fought in South America, that they're against the cartels, you know, they're, they're fighting gangs and stuff like that. Well, obviously the situation is a lot more complex than that, but yeah, I think you, I think you can, you guys can see the parallels that uh, I'm trying to draw here. Um, but yeah, to, to just circle back to Midvichuk, I mean, uh, I go a little bit further than you guys because I think this guy was central to this whole ridiculous, like, net, you know, he, the guy was charged with trying to create a network of pro-Russian, whatever, like, not supporters, but, like, operatives, or, like, to, to create this, like, you know, and I think that uh, him and other people like him were tasked with, like, being the, the people who handed over the keys to Ukraine in, like, certain crucial cities. Uh, they were supposed to get their people in places uh, to be ready uh, and then when the Russian army rolled up, they were supposed to be like, okay, cool, like, come on in. And so, but from what we understand from like, you know, rumors that have been going around on Telegram, the guy was detained before the start of this operation. And he told about all these networks of people and they were all eliminated. And uh, that's one of the reasons why these, these like, in, these, I mean, like, for example, like Kharkiv, right? We, we know that the Russian army tried to roll in there. It was like a, it was like a, almost a repeat of Grozny, of, of Grodna, right? Uh, what is that? What is that capital of Chechnya? I'm forgetting. It's, it's, Gro it's, Grozny. it's Grozny. Yeah, exactly. It was almost a repeat of Grozny where like the Russians were lured in and then the, these guys opened fire on them because they thought that the city had been surrendered. It, we, we almost had a repeat of that with Kharkiv and uh, some cities it worked. I don't know. Maybe it was a different guy running a different network, but uh, for the most part, I think this is a very relevant part of the narrative um, that people don't understand. And um, maybe in time it will come out. But I think the reason why it's suppressed is because it's a big egg on the face of, of Russia's intelligence establishment. Because they're the ones that were supposed to have like, we know Russia thought that this would be a cakewalk. We, we know that they thought it would be a Crimea 2.0. This is, I mean, their behavior is reflective of that. And it wasn't. And so what that indicates to me is that there was a colossal intelligence failure. And so obviously they're, they don't want to admit that. They don't want to, again, more people with eggs on their faces revealed to be incompetent, revealed to be just embezzlers of government money, uh, people who weren't sitting on their butts doing nothing, who lost the entire country, which is why we have all this legalese, Orwellian speak. Too many people basically have their reputations on the line over this Ukraine thing. 
and uh, that's that's why they, there's like this shroud of, of 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 like deliberate misinformation over what happened. Because if if people could see the the, the logical chain of events as they unfolded and the failure, systematic failure, along each point of the chain. There'd be a lot of questions to to the people who who are in these agencies, who who are in these positions. I mean, that's my main narrative. I don't know. You want to comment on that? If not, I, I can move on to the the next and final point. But uh, what do you guys yeah, think? Yeah, yeah, th that's absolutely true. I mean, I mean, how they went in across the border can only be explained that they were expecting that they already had a lot of assets in place that you know they're gonna win half by subterfuge, and and, and it just didn't happen. And you know, it exposed their military in a big way. Any thoughts? I, I totally agree. I think it's, well, first of all, you know, it, it's, we're almost told to, we're, we're sort of uh, encouraged to forget about it. But all you have to do, first of all, all you have to do is look back to, uh, you know, a month before the war when invading Ukraine was an impossibility. And even according to the Russian government, like Lavrov, it was informational terrorism to even suggest it. But then once they go in, uh, you know, everyone's, uh, cheering about how Russia is going to be in Kiev by the end of the week. And, you know, it's going to be this, you know, decapitation operation where they get Zelensky in handcuffs or he flees. And uh, there's no way that, you know, whatever you want to think, this alleged Kiev faint and then the cauldron that never formed in East Ukraine. The reality is that it's absolutely perfectly obvious to anyone who just objectively observes objective reality that plan a did not work and russia had to come up with a plan b and i think that they've been trying to they've been struggling with that since basically march 1st probably all right well um yeah i mean <laughs> i don't know what to say it, it does seem kind of obvious if you take a so i mean obviously the problem is, is these people with their 5d narratives um, and I don't know. I, I don't think that they're doing Russia any service by promoting this, this, this 5d sort of every mistake of Russia is actually, you know, this brilliantly calculated faint or whatever. Does that really help Russia's cause? I, I don't know. I don't even understand why we would get accused of being demoralizers or something like that. These people aren't fighting. They're never going to fight. You know, like the, the, the audience for this kind of misinformation is a Western audience. Are Westerners going to be enlisted to fight in Russia's army? What difference does it make what we say to them? How are we demoralizing them? You know, we're, we're not we're not affecting the war effort at all, especially if we're writing in English. We're just trying to tell Westerners the truth. Right. How it how does so the, some of the accusations that get leveled at us for and other people uh, for... it's re it's really interesting actually because you know they the way they write and the way they talk it's like it's like they imagine themselves to be in the fight as well you know they they are they are also fighting this you know and you know they're writing stuff like oh we're gonna uh denazify you all you know we're coming for you western europe you know writing from from america you know uh, very strange and the, and the thing that's very strange about this is that the three of us, we all have, you know, uh, more connection to Russia than they do. You know, I, I, I'm I'm Slavic, Rolo, I don't know about you, you're, you're some kind of an East Slav, uh, Riley lives there, you know, 
and but they, they they're just like pure westerners uh, living in the west and they're like more and and they're the ones who are imagining themselves that they that they're waging this war that they that they're on Russia's side and so on you know like 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 very strange it's like you know you're sitting on your on your sofa commenting about things you know let's be real here yeah um just for the record i'm from kiev but uh i lived in russia for many years um anyway uh but but yeah okay cool so <laughs> we're in consensus about that i mean it's just bizarre you know it's a lot of the stuff that i, I feel like we're saying it's like we have this in the back of our mind that you know our audience might react negatively to that because they've been conditioned and primed to certain talking points of people who have positioned and styled themselves as being pro-Russia. And what we're saying, where we're being critical of, of Russia internally and, and some of the strategies that they pursued, they, you know, they think that like we're promoting a Western line. And it's like, no, not really, dude. That's that's not what's going on here at all. Uh, if anything, yeah, it's 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 actually bizarre. Of, we're like the ones that actually live <laughs> in that part of the world. <laughs> Whereas these guys are living in Florida, uh, some of them, uh, Florida, I don't know, the West, they, 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 they're up on Patreon. I mean, I haven't been allowed on Patreon for like five years, uh, maybe six. I don't know. It's, it's been a long time. I was one of like, I was banned from Patreon. I, I'm afraid of going on Facebook. You know, I, it's, and these guys are just, their faces out there. You know, everyone knows who they are. They're, they're living deep in enemy territory. And they seem to have no problem raising colossal amounts of money, money that we don't know where it goes, uh, promoting bizarre narratives. It's, it's. I mean, if you were a conspiracy-minded person, uh, you might think that these people are actually kind of doing the work of the enemy by like feeding this bullshit. And then eventually, when when the egg falls on their face, uh, you know, people people are going to be like really shocked by how much reality. Uh, deviates from from what they've been uh, told by these uh crazy pro-russia bloggers but anyway um and then and, and you know what's funny the funny thing is look i understand that you know people uh, adopt uh these you know uh, countries or or sides in a war you know as if it was a basketball game you know it's like oh and then you know like like if you're cheering on the lakers or, or the celtics and stuff like that and it, it, you know they just see everything through that lens and i understand you know that's very human nature i understand that but this is what i do not understand the thing is if you will go on a on a forum of the la lakers and you will write you know a, a forum post about oh our team is really sucks you know this year you know i don't i don't understand you know the roster construction uh, and so on you know, some people will, will agree with you. A lot of them will disagree with you. But nobody will say, oh, you're a secret Celtics fan. You know, nobody will say that, you know. Uh, but yet here, that is exactly what is happening. I mean, these people, that's all they talk about all day long, about how people who, you know, who are more, who, who see more holes in the Russian strategy are actually some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, secret CIA and stuff like that. Yeah, um, I mean, Riley, uh, I think you've you've taken quite a bit of flack from these people too. Uh, do, do you want to say anything about that before we move on to the final topic? Well, yeah, I mean, well, look, just very briefly, I, I, I what I would say as a sort of a, a generalization of my experience over the last, I don't know, 10, 10 months since I started blogging at the Edward Slav Squad. Substack is, uh, you know, I was I naively thought that 
once I once I would start really diving into this stuff that I would be welcome with open arms by all the media because everyone was talking about the dangers of the clot shots. Everyone was talking about the same stuff I was, but because I was talking about clot shots in Russia, no, nobody wanted to hear me out. And in fact, a lot of people, uh, you know, I got a lot of hostility from some people and I was ignored and I had to fight for, I had to fight for everything. You know, I had, I, and to, to, to some extent, I'm glad it's that way because I really, I had to, I had to do what these alt media bloggers don't do, which is I had to actually put out a coherent argument. And all these guys do is circle jerk. They can say whatever they want and no one holds them accountable. Like, look at Scott Ritter, look at Pepe Escobar. These guys can literally just vomit word salad all day and no one cares. And they just look keep at Gonzaga just, Lira. Yeah, the guy's a, he's a, exactly, exactly. And no one cares. These guys can, and Marco pointed this out, um, you know, one of his articles where he said, or maybe it was other discussion, but, you know, he said, like, people, people don't care how wrong you are. They only care when you, when you offend them or upset them. So if you if you if you disclose information, even just an honest, sincere opinion that offends your audience, they'll never forgive you for it. Doesn't matter. And but but if you if you're just consistently wrong, but you say things that people like, they'll love you. And this is where we are right now. And it's sad. Well, you know, this this may come off as like very like hubris, very, uh, you know, like like I'm like I'm bragging or something, but like. If, if if some of these dudes have not been in Russia for literally decades, and uh, one of them wrote that he had come to Russia uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, he didn't like what he saw, and so he just went back to the West. Um, you know, I actually like spent a lot of time trying to like figure out the thing. I was talking to people in Rodina. I met fucking. I'm sorry, I shouldn't swear. I mean, uh, I guess I could swear occasionally if I'm a little bit incensed, but I, I do think it's. I shouldn't do it. Anyway, uh, sorry. I met Zhirinovsky. I talked to his press secretary. You know, I've met a, I've met a lot of people. I haven't met like President Putin or anything like that. But I, I've been around. You know, I've been in Moscow. Riley has as well. I know that for a fact. We've had interesting conversations with with people close to power in the opposition. You know, people doing something. We've talked to Tsiganov. You know, the the leader of the patriotic like anti-COVID effort. You know, the the Katusha. Uh, web portal, which is quite popular in Russia. We talk to generals, you know, I have, you know, family connections of, of like people in Ukraine that I've spoken to, you know, I've talked to journalists. I haven't been just sitting on my butt. This is, you know, it was, it was my dream at some point to like really become a Russia expert, to really be able to contribute to the conversation in a meaningful way to really understand the country. And it's just, it's amazing that I'm like being told by experts from Soviet times who haven't been in the country in what, 40 years? Some of them never even like, I mean, they're from, they're emigres. It's like, what, <laughs> like who is the expert here really? You know, uh, to be fair, there are people with credentials that are much higher than my own, much higher than Riley's, uh, who, who definitely could pull rank on me and Riley. But uh, it's definitely not the people that we're complaining about. It's not Gonzaga Lira. Gonzaga Lira was a was a pickup artist, uh, male self improvement uh, shill shyster. Okay, he he was he was pushing complete bullshit even by the standards of that community. I know because I was in that community as well. Like you know, <laughs> it's so it's just like on all levels. And uh, and then you know you, you have to like they act like they have this insider information. And you really have to ask yourself critically, how do they have this insider information? 
how is is a dude living in Florida or some dude selling houseboats uh you know who's complete who, who thinks that global warming is going to wipe out the world in the next five years and you should buy a houseboat off of him uh or, we're talking about peat plastic I mean we're talking about 70s conspiracy theories right are these guys really connected to the inner circle of the Kremlin? Do they really have an insight into all these things? Oh, one of them served on a diesel sub in the 80s. We we better like listen to everything he has to say. It's like, well, I'm sure the guy knows a lot of stuff. I'm sure he's got a lot of interesting perspectives. But you really got to be able to. And what it is is that Westerners sort of view Russia as like a monolith. You know, you're from Russia. You are an avatar of Russia. You are everything Russian. You know, everything about Russia. You know, you are like a hop and a skip away from President Putin, who's probably your distantly related cousin. You know, they, they have like no conception of Russia as a country of like 160 million people or however many it is. And uh, it's like a, a sprawling apparatus. It's, it's a you know, there's so many different factions, so many different agendas, so many people with different opinions. And, and they just they just assume like, oh, you from Russia, you, you, you Boris. Yes, you drink vodka and, you you know, you invade Ukraine now. Right. You know, it's, it's just this. I don't yeah, know. It's this uh, Western naivete. Look, look, millions of people served in the Soviet military, right? Does that mean we have to listen to all of them? They're all experts. My whole family all, served in the Soviet military, and they don't say the same yeah. stuff as uh, Andrei Martinov. Yeah, uh, you know, like. Yeah, and uh, but Rola, uh, I, 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 I can tell you the mistake you did. You know, you, you came to Russia because you wanted to learn about Russia, and, and and that was your mistake, trying to become an expert on Russia because. Yes, I uh, should have stayed in Florida. <laughs> No, exactly, because these people aren't interested in Russia. These people are interested in anti-America, and anti-America exists in their heads. So you should have stayed, yeah, in Florida on a beach and, and just, you know, thought about this anti-America in your head, and anti-America is always the exact opposite of America, and always every event that happens, the truth is whatever is the most fav fav favorable uh, for the leadership of anti-America, you know, so... It something happened. It was 5D, you know, because because we know uh, American leaders are incompetent, but the leaders of anti-America are, are 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 super awesome. They can just pull out a, a 5D Juno move uh, one after another, uh, and that's it. They karate chop the West, as uh, uh, Pepe Escobar likes to say. They they judo slam the West into the mat yet again, yet again. <laughs> It's yeah, really and, funny. And, and and you know this narrative, uh, you know, could be upheld for a while while not so much was happening, right? When when it's not really being tested. So, for example, you know, you can say, oh, you know, dollar is gonna is gonna stop being the reserve currency. And I I I actually also believe that, you know, but I also believe that won't happen for decades, you know. So there's no way for anyone to know if I'm right or if I'm wrong, you know. But then all of a sudden, you know, you go to a war, and and what happens in a war is you know your your predictions are being tested all the time and, and then and then we see we actually see you know who uh who, who is getting things right and and who just isn't who 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 has a who has a shit red car who who was only an expert because 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 they were never tested yeah so i think that's a, a good point to leave it on uh we're going to be definitely testing some assumptions that uh, a lot of people have I think we're going to be saying unpopular truths, uh, but truths that need to be said. And I do want to stress this. I think all of us are pretty positively uh, inclined towards Russia. I mean, I lived there. I enjoyed it. Uh, I have my critiques of it. Um, Riley did the same. Marco, I think, has a similar perspective. 
uh, I think all of us could could vaguely be, you know, categorized as pro-Russian. But that doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, sell this uh, like prefabricated narrative uh, that, that's incoherent, that doesn't make sense. Because uh, ultimately, uh, I do think that the truth will set us free. I think that uh, being able to look the you know, reality in, in the face and, and, and to accept the harsh aspects of it. Uh, in a weird way, what we're saying is that there's a lot that uh, people in the West, the, the hapless peasant masses of the West and the hapless peasant masses of Russia and, and, and the Slavlands, that, that they actually have a lot in common. You know, they, 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 they face somewhat similar situations. Uh, and so really what we're saying is that we're kind of all in the same boat here and that we should definitely have these conversations. We should reach across uh, you know, uh, you know, party lines. We should we should be able to talk with one another and figure out what's going on on a global scale. Not delude ourselves, and then at the very least, like we maybe something could come of that. I don't know. Probably not. But <laughs> we're, we're all pessimists on this show. Uh, but but, but yeah, I, I think that, that that's the message that we're that we're trying to promote here. It's that look, we're all in the same boat together. You know, things are kind of bad everywhere. This this idea of Russia is gonna like save you, or that Russia's perfect and you can't critique it. Well. I mean, we would like that to be true, but uh, unfortunately, like at least Riley and I, we've had to actually live there for a bit. So, <laughs> you know, we've had run-ins with like actual elements of distasteful elements of Russian society. Uh, you know, we, we've we've had questions that, that that have been raised by our analysis of events that have been happening in Russia. And I'll definitely give the the last word to to my co-host uh, Riley. Uh, do you have any final thoughts for our inaugural episode? maybe leave it on a positive note. I, I know that that's kind of a hard to, 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 to ask you for that on the spot, but maybe you could uh, pull it out somehow. What, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think we're definitely, uh, we're marching towards um, a very obvious escalation in Ukraine. And um, I hope that maybe there's a small chance that uh, Maybe this means that you know, with, with 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 things heating up, maybe 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 we can see a, a cooling off soon. Although I'm not I'm not very optimistic about that. But you know, uh, well here's here's what I'll say. You know, um, Rolo, you'll know this about uh, the Russian avos. You know, the uh, the sort of hope hope for the how, how would you translate that? Hope hope for the like you don't understand how things will work out, but you just hope for the best and. Um, I guess, I guess that's a nice optimistic thing you can say. <laughs> well, you tried, Riley. Thank you, uh, Marco. Please <laughs> pick us up a little bit. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I, no, I, I cannot do that. I cannot say that. You know, I, I have some, you know, happy stuff to say, some optimistic stuff to say. You know, the best I could do is that you know, this stuff in Ukraine. You know, love it or hate it. You know, it's very historic. You know, this month. You know, the referendums, the mobilization. I mean, in some ways, this mobilization is almost more significant, you know, than than than, than the start of the war itself. Uh, you know, you're gonna have more than more than a doubling of people that are actually involved in a war, unfortunately. Uh, and but at the same time, you know, when you start a war, you know, you don't get to pick and choose what you do and what you do not do. You know, a lot of that is baked into into the into a starting a war. And and I guess that is what Putin learned right now. That you know, you start a war; it has a logic of its own, has a life of its own. 
things stop being up to you. And, 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 and this is what happened. You know, he was postponing this uh, as long as, as, uh, as he wanted to, probably longer than he should have. It, it would have been better for everyone. I mean, honestly, including better for Ukrainians. If, if you know, if you're, go if you're going to mobilize seven months into the war, that is proof that you should have done it from the start. You know, there is nothing to be gained by, by delaying uh, this. And, and, and now, you know, what happens, happens. And what happens is what was going to happen anyway, except, you know, now it's going to take a longer time and more people are going to die. Sorry, this is the exact opposite to what you, you wanted to hear. But it is what it is. All right, guys, on that note, on that optimistic note, I do think it's, I think Marco's right. It is a historic uh, event. Uh, I think a lot, again, I, I sort of adopted the position of the patriotic community within Russia and um they're happy about it and i don't think that 300,000 it's i don't think it's going to stop at 300,000 i think it's uh president zelensky came out recently saying that uh alleging that uh, he his secret intelligence operation had figured out that it would be actually closer to a million and i don't think you need a secret intelligence network to to realize that that's probably the case uh 300,000 is not enough uh but uh the kremlin is being careful for reasons that I, I, I actually I still don't really understand other than the fact that they don't seem to trust their own people I guess uh, that's that's the best explanation I can come with for now uh, but yeah I think this is the, the beginning of something momentous uh, these changes I think are going to reverberate you know 300,000 soldiers being mobilized is going to have an effect and then eventually a million probably is going to have an effect on everything from the economy to the rhetoric to the way things are run in Russia, hopefully. Uh, I think uh, what's going to happen now is people are going to start demanding in Russia a lot more ответственность. Uh, what is it? What's the American word for that? Um, Responsibility? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Respond or like, like uh, uh, sort of uh, openness. Like, account like, like accountability? Yeah. Yes. Like yeah, yeah. Accountability. From the government uh, whereas earlier it was sort of like a a private war it was like a libertarian war like an ancap style style uh special military operation now we're we're going back to the 19th century here and that means 19th century rules apply hopefully so i think this is going to lead to monumental changes within russia itself and that was actually why i started blogging uh, that was literally the reason is that I started seeing these firings. I started seeing media being shut down. Uh, and this actually gave me a lot of hope. Uh, it, it like enheartened me. And then after that, there was this total, like nothing happened. And, and it was just the status quo again. And I, and I, and I kind of felt like, uh, the only way that this thing would start up again was if the war got more serious. And so we'll see if my prediction is correct. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, we'll so big things are in the works uh and this is not even talking about nato this is not even talking about the other party uh we're gonna we're gonna meet i think maybe twice a week we're gonna keep putting out content we're gonna keep analyzing the events uh the whole summer uh operational pause is over things are moving quite fast and uh we're gonna be there to cover it and to bring the analysis to you so thank you for listening uh we hope you'll tune in next time until next time, then, the Svidania.